Anyway, Don Alm is my name. I was born and raised in Chicago, and I'm a Southside Swede, which I will get into a little later. However, um, been involved with the museum since the inception, um, a little bit of that as well. Uh, I'm very happy to have you with us today, that's all I can say. It, it's the last stronghold of the Swedish community in Chicago, largely. There are a couple of other, couple of other things out there, but generally this is it. Um, historically, it's very important uh, to keep the history of the Swedish community going and also to try to retain the culture, which is not that easy. Uh, I'll try to throw a little bit about the Swedish culinary life in. However, Magnus Nilsson has a current display here in the building. He's a Swedish chef, um, fairly well known. Um, they've modernized that cuisine considerably the last years. It's sort of dwindled out to being very watered down. I, I know the original stuff that came with my mother when she emigrated, so I have some background in that direction. I'm Swedish speaking, born and raised in Chicago, born and raised on the south side. Fortunate to be able to speak Swedish fluently because of some contacts I've made over the years. Anyway, you're extremely welcome here, and I'm glad you're here. I'll do the best I can to be, give you an informative tour uh, as best I can. One thing I'd like to mention, though, a lot of what I will tell you today is from personal experience. Um, I can't justify or verify all of the figures that I give you, but they're very, very approximate, but they're also quite accurate. Um, so if you hear or see anything that you find that isn't true or online, let me know. I'll gladly take it. We're going to start in the second level up there. Um, at the very top of the stairs, uh, it's rather crowded, so we're going to have to build back and forth a little bit, but it's very important that we all hear what I'm saying. Okay. All right. Uh, welcome. Th this is a rather complicated issue we're dealing with here, but when our guests come in, we look at this first display. Those are the people that have arrived, newly arrived from Scandinavia, that are looking at the Statue of Liberty and wondering, what is our future? Uh, what do we have in front of us? And why did they leave Sweden in the first place? That's the other good question. And that, of course, applies to the rest of Europe as well. In that European, I'd like to say largely European immigration, uh, between 1830 and after the Second World War up into the early 50s, that whole area, uh, during that period, roughly 1,400,000 Swedes emigrated from Sweden, which was roughly one quarter of the population. Um, it, it, it meant that the um, entire society was, was heavily damaged because of that large emigration. Um, of course, it was a benefit for North America, obviously, and the U.S. particularly, and Canada as well. Uh, it was a benefit. These people were aggressive. They were looking to find their opportunities. Uh, they came from rather difficult circumstances, um, meaning the fact that the uh, difficult circumstances, they were possibly famine, uh, there, was, uh, there was forced military uh, service, uh, there was the inheritance laws, uh, there was the church that dominated the social life to a great extent because the church and the state were combined. Um, those issues, and my father I think probably was most affected by the forced, uh, forced um, sorry, military service as well as the social situation from the church. Uh, one example he told me when he was a little boy walking downtown, he happened to run into the local pastor or priest, or post as they call them, and he didn't nix a bow as all young people were supposed to do when they passed the, the um, pastor, and he didn't bow. So the pastor yelled his name forward, he said, I'll come back here, he said, just like that very sternly. You didn't bow. And he said, no I didn't, and then he just walked away. 
Um, so that meant that, that, that there was an immediate reflection on my grandfather or, my, or his father and that family. That's how tight it was. They, were able, they had the privilege of uh, making alcohol, which was forbidden to the general public. They had conveniently um, ner uh, maids within their ho homes and so forth. Um, questionable. Anyway, all of those issues came to fore. Uh, it also caused a constitutional mon monarchy, both in Sweden and in Norway. Norway sent over 1,400,000 also, again a quarter of their population. So the Scandinavians were really heavy. Roughly 12 million, between 12 million and 14 million people emigrated during that period into the US and Canada. Uh, if we take today, we look at Syria, we took it, look at Afghanistan, we look at North Africa, Africa, thinking about that emigration from those countries into Europe at this point, roughly the same numbers, so you never know. But we're all immigrants, so I mean, we have to be careful when we, we castigate immigrants. Um, we're all immigrants at one time or another, notwithstanding our American Indians, but uh, that's, that's something we should think about. Let's get back to the immigration issues. Um, pretty much the pull push. Uh, the, what was the pull? Uh, the pull was, of course, unlimited uh, farmland uh, through hom homesteading, uh, especially in the Midwest and a little further west. Um, there was the freedom of religion, no problem there at all. Uh, that's what caused the Bishop Hill Colony down uh, just outside of, of uh, Galesburg um, to establish a gentleman by the name of um, um, Nilsson. I might have lost his name. Anyway, he's a gentleman that he was a, a, a wheat, wheat flour salesman in Sweden. And he fell off his horse when he was young and he had a, it was unconscious and during that period uh, a vision came down telling him that he was the son of God, um, this, the second son of God. So he f built up this massive following. People had no education at that point particularly. They were lucky if they got one or two grades, if anything. So many were, uh, at that point, uh, not even literate. They couldn't read, for instance. So they followed readily. And they, anyway, the long story short, they, they built a colony in Bishop Hill just outside of Galesburg. And that's still there today and is being restored. So it's quite interesting for a, a weekend to get down there. Um, let's move from that period then from the, um, this, the 19, the later immigration over to the early immigration, which we now step over in this direction. Um, right behind you here is a display. Stina Olofsdottir, um, her, her sad look on her face, what would that be from? Um, her family is now immigrating to the US. And she knows very well that she will never see them again. This was during the 1830, 1840 immigration, up until the time when, when steamships began to haul people across the Atlantic. Uh, a little later also, because at one time, before the Swedish-American line, uh, then the, the travel was from Scandinavia over to England and then the, the white, on the White Star Line and Cunard or one of the others over to New York. However, in 1914, uh, the Swedish-American Line started direct service from Gothenburg to New York. So then that made it, the trip a lot shorter. But if we go back to the 1830s and 1840s, when the, sail, the, 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 the ships or the sailboats, in fact, took three and a half months to get to the U.S. So you can imagine the, the, the conditions on board. Um, they were largely transport vessels. They had um, merchandise. They had steel. They had other things. <clears throat> so the, the um, immigrants were an add-on, basically. And the, the conditions were unbelievable. 
Um, and this not only applies to the Swedes, but all of the others that came through that channel also. Um, that would be, well, you, we know already, Chicago, for instance, that the Poles, the Italians, the Irish, um, the Germans, um, all of those had, were a, a part of that immigration period. Um, now, getting over to this period when they're sailing across, these two um, um, displays uh, tell you what they could take with them on the ship when they came over. This is the stuff that they were allowed to bring. Uh, some rye bread, uh, some cornbread, one brick, brick of cheese, one uh, can of butter, uh, one, eight cans of drink, um, some, some uh, uh, dry bread, uh, coffee, um, um, that, you know, it's basically a honey, um, some uh, salt sill, uh, herring, uh, and sack of potatoes, sack of flour, and sack of uh, uh, grain, oats, um, um, peas, vinegar, and sugar. And then these are the issues. You can see them. They're pretty much graphic as to what they could bring as far as household goods. All of that would have to be put into one of these trunks. That's what they are. And so they were supposed to cook on the ship? Yeah, well, right. Well, they didn't cook, basically. what We're talking about culinary efforts here. We're talking about dried bread. We're talking about salt herring. We're talking about some sausages that they might have with them. No fresh fruits or anything in that order. All stuff that could be preserved. But and flour. Um, pardon? Flour. Well, flour as well. I don't know that, um, I think they had some warm, they were able to do some cooking. I think they had one time now and then they would build a fire on the deck so it was contained and then they could cook. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Wilhelm Oberg as the author, the author Wilhelm Oberg. He did a, a trilogy on the immigration called The Immigrants. And it's based it's, on the movie. I mean, the movie was based, based on, on the book, yeah. right? And yeah, the book, yeah. I mean, the movie starred Max von Sydow and Lee Ullman, and it gives a really graphic uh, description of that period and the trip across the Atlantic. I definitely recommend it for anyone that wants to follow through on that. Yeah, the culinary issues. Go ahead, certainly. How long was the passage? The passion, three months, three and a half months. They were on the ship for three and a half that months. That long, because depending on the winds and so forth, because there was no power. They had, um, and of course, many passed away, many succumbed during that trip. Uh, so, did they generally go to New York or did they go to other ports? Uh, yeah, no, well, New York also, but many others. It depended uh, on just the, wherever. They, precisely, many did end up in New York. I'm sorry. Go ahead. How did they have enough food to sustain them? Well, they didn't. Often they ran out, but they hopefully they shared other than that. Um, they fish? Well, I don't know about that. I've oh. never. I'm not sure of the details. Um, however, they did survive. And I don't know if they were eating into these parts of it or whatever. I, have, I really don't know the details on that. I do only know that my mother brought with her the culinary arts of Sweden when she came over here. And as we mentioned earlier, uh, many of it was preservation. Um, a lot of what we had at that time, and especially in Sweden, they had to preserve for the winter. Uh, herring was a big thing, and of course, in sill or pickled herring with sugar, vinegar, and of course they didn't use vinegar, they used a thing called etika, which is a very strong version of vinegar, but it's distilled and not from natural products. So there's some question as to how healthy it is, but in any case, it's much stronger. Um, and they did also, um, they made sour herring, it's called surströmming, 
And that Sears drumming, they would put it in a, in a can and seal the can, and then it would um, fester? Ferment? <laughs> Ferment. <laughs> I like fester also. When you smell it, you'd realize it was festering rather than fermenting, I'm sure. Anyway, they would keep this, and the can would bubble up like that. And then they had to take it out in the backyard and punch a hole in it because the thing would burst. <laughs> exactly. And you can still buy this product today. That is true. Because there was somebody on LTH who was in your home country, and they they were staying in some hostel or whatever, and they opened it up, and that smell really did, but they didn't realize where the splatter went, so they had to clean it. Yeah, actually. Well, there was this question. I worked for the Swedish American line, which I'll get into in a moment, uh, in my earlier years. But the, the airlines began to come in then. Uh, people would, would try to smuggle a can of Sears drumming <laughs> in their luggage, right? Oh, oh, no. Yes. Unpressurized areas of the airplane. <laughs> Pop! And they would get all of this in their luggage, and of course the entire baggage area would be affected by it. So they just they, now it's banned to bring into this country. You can't bring Sears drumming in. Um, it's a matter of, of practicality. Um, cheeses, of course, were big. Sausages were big. Hardtack, or or a, a type of thin bread with a hole in the middle, um, that was very popular. And I, you'll get it's a, like another. Exactly. Vasa bread. That's exactly it. Right, exactly. I, I, I drink that. I, I, I eat that today. By the way, Sears drumming. Um, there was a little additive to that, by the way, when you ate Sears drumming, uh, besides potatoes. They also used the distilled product from potatoes, also called vodka, which helped a whole bunch to get over that, I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> So um, now they're moving across the Atlantic. In, in Moberg's book, by the way, when they arrive in New York, um, um, Carl Oscar and Christina was sitting on a bench on, on sort of a little hill in, in New York, and Carl Oscar went out and found a few delicacies. He came back, and Christina was dejected, sitting on a side of a hill there, and he had a big apple. And he gave the apple to her, and he had a, a, a roll, a plain old roll that we know so well. And he said, think of this, Christina, they eat rolls in this country every day. And, and then she took a bite of this apple after three and a half months at sea. So that was the incentives at that point. Ulti and the long story, for as far as Wilberg is concerned, they settled up in, in, in the Lindstrom area, right around um, St. Croix Falls, if you're, anyone is familiar with that area up, it's a little north of Minneapolis by about 40 miles. And they settled up there when they finally arrived after this massive trip, which you will see in the book. He took a spade and he ran it into the ground. He said, my God, Christina, it's a, a whole foot, no, two feet deep with black dirt. And of course, they came from an area that was loaded with stones and rocks, so they couldn't raise the food that they needed. Um, that, but that book is very descriptive if you have a chance to read it. Over to Gothenburg. Now, I mentioned a little bit of a Swedish American line. Uh, starting in, in 1915, um, bringing direct service over. Well, that meant that a lot of people will immigrate. The one thing about the Scandinavians, though, as opposed to the current immigration, particularly out of, out of uh, Latin America at this point. Many of those people from Northern Europe actually came legally. 
Uh, my mother had a passport. My mother had the, the license from the church to leave Sweden. All of those documents that were necessary for entry into the U U.S. Um, so many of those people came in without problem. Um, however, there were many that didn't, um, that didn't have the proper documentation. There was the steamship's uh, responsibility to haul them back if they were refused entry through, through Ellis Island. But regardless of that, in Gothenburg, they would have places to stay over for the night have a decent meal, and then they would wander over after getting cleared over and get on the ship. Uh, this gentleman here is one of the individuals that would be selling and counseling people as to how to handle the trip. Going back over now to LSI, some of the implements, by the way, also, that whole thing is worth looking at in detail, but I'm not going to take it right now. Um, moving further over, uh, we're then going into the, the um, immigration between um, 19, 1893 through about 1950, roughly. That was the area that I uh, mentioned earlier at approximately 1,200,000 Swedes. Um, Ellis Island's story is right here on the wall. Gives you an idea what 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 happened at that point. They were hauled into the main waiting area, signed a number, then they would go through the process. Um, it was rather difficult. They didn't know for sure whether their, their problem with vision or bad teeth or something would, would reject them, and that was quite the case quite often. Um, again, the story of the Swedish American line, they bought a vessel from the, from the, uh, from the Dutch in, in, in 1915, started sailing direct, as I mentioned earlier. Some of the history, these are the newer ships, that's one of the ones, by the way, I mentioned, I was with the Swedish American Line between uh, 19, uh, 1958 and 1965. So I've, I've sailed on these ships several times. Um, so I have some idea what it was like. Um, not so much, of course, they switched from immigration to passenger uh, some years later. Obviously the immigration issue died out somewhat, but they also became one of the most famous cruise ships as well. They started the cruise industry very, very ultra, 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 and uh, only the highest society would be out on these ships. Swedish American Line, Norwegian American Line, Holland America Line, all of them were sailing cruise ships. Right behind us here, we have a, a lady that looks rather forlorn with her daughter. Um, she is waiting for her husband after being cleared at, at uh, Ellis Island. However, he hasn't shown up. You can imagine after the trip and all of the, the sacrifices and everything they made to make this trip, and he has encouraged them because he went first to make the money to send them, bring them over here so that he didn't show up. But they had to spend the night in Ellis Island. There is a happy ending, however, he did show up the next day. His train was delayed. Now, sitting next to her is a young lady that we don't know the name of that was rejected. So she's now facing the dilemma of getting back to Sweden and, and that, that issue of trying to, what is left for her life now? What, what will happen for her at this Why point? Why was she rejected? Well, it could be any number of reasons. It could be health-wise, it could be teeth, it could be eyes, it could be any number of different things. They had a health inspection for each one that came through. Well, if you didn't have teeth or you had infections and you had various different problems in that order. Now, those again, those details, I would refer you to the Ellis Island history. Rather, I'm not totally sure about what that was, but there were limitations. That, that much I know. I have a question for you. Were there, uh, 
Was the immigration strictly word of mouth, or did they have agents from, let's say, the Swedish government that would encourage people to go to the States, or was it just letters talked about land of planning? Good question. Uh, there were many uh, articles published in this country uh, glorifying the issue here. And, and many of them had an interest in getting people over because there was a shortage of wor workers, for one thing, in many industries. And they knew that the Swedes, Norwegians, and the Northern Europeans were very capable in many areas, in woodworking and, and blacksmithing and so forth. But then again, the previous immigrants, in the case with my mother, for instance, her, her sister was here already. She immigrated earlier. So she incurred, why did she leave Sweden? That's a good point. Why did she leave Sweden? Well, it was the, uh, the uh, inheritance issue with her. Um, they had 13 brothers and sisters in the family. Uh, the mother and father passed away. The oldest brother inherited the farm, which was another issue because in many cases, the older brother was off having a good time in Italy. While the younger brother took care of the farm and the, and, and the senior people, all of a sudden the father would die and the older son would inherit the farm. He would come home and nothing left for the little young brother. He would have to get back over to America instead. And that was the case with my mother. Um, my older brother decided that she would take over the mother's job and become char in charge of cooking and all of those other things that normally the woman of the family would do. So she kissed him goodbye and emigrated over to her sister. She became an au pair in High Park in the south part of the city. Um, many, 500,000 approximately ladies also immigrated during that period, so it wasn't all male immigration. They were very highly sought after because they had the, they had the, the domestic training which was so valuable as au pair, particularly. So uh, she did very well. In fact, she helped my father and my two uncles who later immigrated through the Depression because she was employed and, and quite well reimbursed. They were largely slaves in, in the old Sweden, the, the, the women were. Uh, they worked for little or nothing, 12 to 14 hours a day caring for children and cooking and, and cleaning and so forth. So that was a great outlet for them, and that caused a lot of the immigration in that direction. Um, I think it was like that for most Europeans, too. I'm sure it was. I, I know something of the others. I've also mentioned the other large groups that have immigrated. I can, unfortunately, only concentrate on the Swedish today. But again, it applied to most all of the immigration coming through, as it does for the Syrians and the Afghanistans, the Middle Eastern people uh, as Africans right at the moment, and not less the, uh, the Latin Americans as well. So, you know, that's an issue we have to deal with. Um, I have right. a question. Yeah. Um, when did the inheritance law change? When, when, the, when the church and state separated in 1980, uh, 1980. That's so how late it was. Well, was yeah, little by little. I, I mentioned the constitutional monarchy when the king no longer had total con control and there was, there was elected representatives throughout the country and a prime minister was, was appointed. That, whole, that changed the entire thing. And that also led to the socialization that we know in Scandinavia today as well. Um, the free health care, all of those issues were a result of that immigration. They had to make it attractive for people to stay otherwise they would have lost everyone. So that was, the, that was a turnaround right at that point. There was a massive uh, rejection of the total control of the king and the bishop, the um, archbishop, 
as, as such. Um, there was a total rejection of that, and that's where that all took place. So that's a case both with Norway and Sweden, in fact. All right. The, well, two groups. What about the Danes? How many of 500,000 Danes emigrated also. They were more, um, they were more aggressive. Uh, they were more, um, what would you say, um, business oriented. They were more stable economically rather than the other two countries. They had pretty good agricultural control. Uh, they, they, they produced a lot of product that was available and, and readily sold and exported. So they weren't in the same uh, problem as the Swedes and Norwegians, and in the fact the Finns also. So why would they immigrate then? Uh, pardon? Why would they immigrate if they well, were doing had, so well? Yeah, well, there was a you know, larger population, but there was the percentage was much less from Denmark. Uh, they had contacts on this side. You know, like everyone else, I would imagine. I really don't know. Uh, the, let's put it this way. The push factor wasn't as strong in Denmark mm -hmm. as it was in Sweden and Norway. Okay. i put it that way. Okay. Um, the wall behind us. You can buy a brick for $50. That's uh, fundraising um, for the museum, uh, in case you are wondering. Um, there are a bunch of Swedes. We will kind of look at that a little later in the tour. There were a bunch of Swedes that made it well in this country. Um, they were very aggressive, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, they were highly sought after because of their their uh, ability with steel, um, being um, being blacksmiths, uh, being well trained in woodworking. All of those issues. In fact, there was rather interesting story. One of my clients some years ago, by the way, I've been in the travel business for all these years. We send a bunch of people over and back. In uh, any case, one gentleman came into the shop one night. He said, well, we've, de okay, well, we've decided to return to Sweden because I'm, I'm re retiring now, my wife and I. And uh, then I said, oh, well, that's excellent. He said, yeah, it's a rather strange story I have, he said. I, oh, really? Yeah, I said, well, when I emigrated in the 20s, um, I arrived in, in Union Station in Chicago, and my brother was supposed to meet me, and he didn't show up. So all of a sudden, a gentleman came up to me speaking Swedish, and he said, oh, uh, are you from Sweden, and what do you do? He said, well, I'm a blacksmith. I, I'm uh, in the, you know, I've been working steel and so forth. And so eyes lit up. And he said, come on over, I'll uh, cross the street, I'll buy you a beer. He said, I'll welcome you to Chicago. So he did, he walked across the street with this nice gentleman and went into a bar and they bought a beer, he had a second one, and that's the last he remembers. <laughs> so he wakes up in Kiwani, Illinois, without a passport, without any money, without anything in his pocket. And right across the street from the boiler works. The boiler works. Yeah. Right, in Kiwani. Um, so he had little choice but to go in, and, and these people had already set it up so that when he went in there, he was immediately employed and got a start and so forth. And he met a young lady from a little town up the way who was Swedish also. They married, and they stayed there for the entire time. This was probably around... 85, 90, something around in there when they returned to Sweden. Yeah. So there was a Shanghai issue as well at that point. What but, issue was Pardon? Shanghai. Oh, Shanghai. They would, Shanghai. Right. They, they drug, dug, drugged his beer, and the next thing he knew, he was in Kiwani. His name was Malmrose, M-A-L-M-R-O-S-E. Just so that you know, it's an actual story. So do you think that he, it was a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, he seemed to think it was a good thing. 
Well, ma mainly because of his wife and so forth and the, and the life they, they developed during that period. Um, often the case in many other areas too though, as, as I mentioned about my mother. My father, there again, he came over in 1929, 28, 28, and worked for my uncle who was a building contractor on the South Side. That's why I'm a South Side Swede, by the way. And, and he was working for his, his uncle uh, getting along quite well working, he was supposed to take over the business in time. That was the whole idea behind it, because he had no sons. Well, you know what happened in 1929. Yes. Uh, and my uncle's business went down the tube, so everything else did as well. So my father was unemployed. He didn't get along with his aunt at all, so he had to move out of there as well. But then it was a saga of jobs. These people, they were imaginative. They were out there. They were going to live through this situation. However, many did return. Uh, there was a reverse immigration during that period also. Uh, so it was not, uh, and there have been quite a number of cases that, that, ha that has happened. Uh, but my father was just that strong and that just that determined to stay. Um, they married in 19, my mother and he married in 1933, I think it was, 34, um, three years before I was born. But in any case, um, he did a whole bunch of stuff to stay alive. Ultimately, he became a janitor on the south side, had four large buildings, owned by a Swedish doctor who had developed, delivered me, by the way, <laughs> at South Shore Hospital on the south side. There were two Swedish doctors that had emigrated but had the, ne the necessary documentation, had been trained in Sweden, so they, they got their jobs very readily. But they were able to speak Swedish which was a huge advantage because of the Swedish the population at that time. So that was a, a huge advantage. Um, right, but we're talking about the entrepreneurial skills of, of the in, inbound immigrants. Yeah, we also had good work ethic. That's exactly. Yes, precisely, which I'm going to get to in a minute here um, also. Um, the demographics of the area, the immigration, are, are pretty well lined up here. Uh, you get an idea. I'm not going to go into detail. Mainly, it, it shows how the immigration has changed and moved from one point to another. Um, that's largely due to social changes. Um, as with the south side, where I live, um, there was it's considerable change socially in the fact that the African Americans have moved south. And in my area now, particularly where I live, where my family home is, um, largely is African-American at this point. Um, and of course, at one time, 75th and Cottage Grove on the south side was as large a community as was in the north side here, which everybody talks about. Clark and Belmont, 75th and Cottage Grove, just as many Swedes down on the south side. Um, and so it's hard, and they have scattered, they've scattered to the south. They're, they're in, in, um, in um, Frankfurt and areas around in that general area, as well as northern Indiana, Munster in that area. That's where a lot of them immigrated. The, the north side Swedes up in the northwest, north and northwest suburbs quite a number of them. Very little of that ethnic life left here. Um, one of the largest and most prominent churches is Ebenezer Lutheran Church, which is right a block and a half down. Um, that was a large part of, you know, you had religious freedom at that point. That was a thing. People were, but in my case, my parents were anti-church. So I was, I had no contact with the church when I was younger. It was on my own initiative that I went in, that I, that I became more involved with the church. Um, however, that was the reason for many emigrating. Most of the friends that my family had 
the time the, the people that I was raised with, the immigrants, they were pretty much anti-church. Um, so that's a two, well, because of the subjugation in, in Scandinavia that I'd mentioned to you earlier, the church-state control, there was a huge social control. There was lack of education among other issues that caused that. And what denomination was the church? A Lutheran. Um, the original Swedish church was the Augustana Synod of the Lutheran Church. Uh, it was um, formed and uh, started in, I can't think of the town, but it now is in Rock Island, Illinois. Um, that's where the original Augustana Synod was. Um, it's a rather unusual town. It's right on 57, going south, I can't remember. Anyway, not important now. Um, so that was part of the reason for but, the... But is, uh, what is, is, is that the national religion? Yeah, uh, right, it was the national. So what, what was the percentage? It was, is it like Catholicism in Italy? 80%, because you were a oh, member 80%. of the church when you were died, when you were born. Okay. You were a member of the church. You were given a pers person number, person number, that was it. And you remember the church until 1980 when it split. Then, but you know there were several others: the the the, the Baptist Church, the Free Church, um, uh, the Jewish um, the, the Jewish religion was in there. Uh, in fact, a lot of the, a lot of the aristocracy in Stockholm right now are Jewish in background. Uh, Raoul Wallenberg, a name you might be familiar with. Uh, he was of Jewish descent. He was the one that saved what ten or twelve thousand uh, uh, Germans during the Second World War. Um, many others similar to that that did that issued documentation to get them out. Um, entrepreneurial skills. Yes, they were very very aggressive. Uh, they had some skills already when they came because of apprenticeships that were effective in, in Europe and Scandinavia. Um, woodworking. Uh, my my. Father-in-law, um, my father-in-law's father and my father-in-law both worked at the Pullman Works on the South Side. If you're familiar with that, by the way, for those of you that have an opportunity that haven't done that, it's certainly well worth a trip down to 115th and 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 Michigan, I think. Or 111th. Isn't it? Yeah, it starts right exactly. It's, Exit at 111th. Anyway. Yeah, right exactly. All right, and it's just the going through. It's the first. I don't know what the street is. I'm not sure the first one that you come to. Anyway, you can't miss it because there's a big building on the one side. They have an excellent museum now that they put together that, that really um, incorporates all of that information with regard to um, with regard to Pullman. It's well worth a visit. Uh, anyway, he was a woodworker, and he was the gentleman that gave the final word for the car to leave the building because of his woodworking skills. And he was the one that if he didn't give his word that everything was perfect, then the car didn't leave. So those, and they made their own tools as well. You know, if there was something that didn't fit, they would make their own tools. So they were very aggressive and very capable. And we talked about that, the, uh, the work ethic. That was sought after because the employers knew for a fact that they'd be there at 9 o'clock in the morning or 8 o'clock. They were willing to put their 12 hours in, 14 hours in under those difficult circumstances before unionization. So, I mean, they were, they were overall just very, very sought after. Um, also, they were very, um, what would you say, honest or reliable. Uh, there was a, uh, a furniture store on the south side called Hoven and Thorpe. And they dealt 
quite a bit with the Swedes uh, and, of course, Scandinavians, but primarily the Swedes down there. Anyway, you would, uh, my mother and father would walk into Hoven and Dorp and they'd say, we're looking for a uh, sofa. And, All right, well, fine. And they had a couple of guys who spoke Swedish also. Uh, so they walk around and they say, which one would you like? And they say, well, that one like over there looks pretty good. And said, okay, not a problem. When do you want it delivered? And they'd say, well, my Wednesday is okay. Okay, it'll be delivered on Wednesday. He'd leave for a moment and come out with a coupon book and hand him the coupon book. And he said, all right, uh, monthly payments of $25 a month or $15 a month. That's how it went because he knew very well that they were secure. And uh, I know at the first of the month, my father was on his way down uh, with the coupon book, or else my mother was, one or the other. So they were, uh, they were religious in that aspect of it. Um, and I think that's part, part of what gives um, my generation, as being first generation of the immigrants, um, I think that ethic remains pretty much. Um, I, I've tried to impart that on my sons, and hopefully they will on my grandchildren as well. Uh, but that is a, an ethic that is inborn. Now, where it comes from, 800, 900 years of, of cultural development from the Vikings, I imagine, as well. We'll talk about the Vikings in a few minutes. Um, stores. Now, by the way, uh, there is a little booklet. Um, for those of you that are really into this thing, and not just kind of passing my tool over as a passing thing, but if you're really into this, um, there's a little booklet at the top of the stairs that we came up that gives you a lot of the factual information of what I'm telling you today. Uh, I, I, uh, uh, I added a little bit here on there, of course, but that's another story. And I'm not sure it's all accurate, but pretty close. Anyway, we're talking about grocery stores. Um, one store, Adalcolan, D-A-L-A-U-L-L-A-N, um, is um, a, um, Dalarna is one of the central provinces of Sweden and known for its artistic background. Uh, very, very cultural oriented. The Swedish uh, hand paintings that you'll find, uh, the, the horse that's so common for the Swedish thing with all the colors on it and so forth, uh, that particular painting had to do with winter and darkness and uh, this, this long, long period of darkness and, and, and uh, without fresh foods they would paint their houses in bright colors and make sure that they all were very happy in that direction. That transferred over to Norway. It's called Rus Amalen in Norway, uh, which is roughly the same. It's just a matter of painting nice things. Uh, being uh, Anyway, Dalkolan was a store at, at Clark and Belmont. Uh, are, are you familiar with snus? Anyone? It's not exactly culinary, but it is used through the mouth. <laughs> snuff. Well, it's not snuff. That's the interest. Uh, interesting thing about it, snus is Swedish. It's very moist and it's very, very mild. Any, not anywhere close to the dry, harder type snuff we have in this country. And that's why for a while they tried to introduce snuff as a, as a substitute for cigarette smoking because it would reduce your nic nicotine uh, dependence because it's less nicotine in it. Anyway, snus was the thing that they wanted and they didn't have it everywhere. So. The workers, for instance, uh, they, wherever they happen to be, um, they would, and particularly on the south side, which I'm familiar with, these guys would say, oh, I'm going to go up to visit my girlfriend on the north side. I said, oh, really? Uh, will you be anywhere close to Snuskotan or Snuff Street? And I said, yeah, I think so. I'm going to go be by Dalkal. I said, could you pick me up a Strut, which is a cone? 
and they sold the snuff in a cone, and then they twisted the top, and that was Snooskata. Now there's a Snooskata in Rockford, there's one in Minneapolis, which both of them are fam quite famous. They tried in Rockford to, to develop it to a greater extent. They haven't had as much success as some of the others. But um, anyway, Clark and Belmont here in Chicago was known as Snooskanton in Chicago. I think they have a new one. I'm I've Armitage. Oh, is it right? Yeah, I've yes. seen ads. I really have Really? No, I'm not a familiar with that. Yeah. Well, it's kind of cool because it's, it's an attraction to get people there. You know, for whatever. Well, I mean, maybe not for that purpose, but the point is to develop the community. That's the whole idea behind it. Um, yeah, let's see where else, where are we now? Um, we're talking about, I've got most of that stuff in, I think. All right, now, oh yes, next we go. Um, the, the medical life I mentioned to you earlier, uh, the early immigration, uh, many of the, uh, the women that came over had some medical background also. Um, so getting into the um, nursing profession was something that was highly prized. In fact, one of my earlier groups recently uh, they knew her, or know her. She's up in Highland Park right now. She's married, however, with a different name now, and getting up in years, obviously. She graduated in, in 57, so that would be making her in my generation. And, uh, but that's how close we are. Augustana Hospital, we're talking about Swedish Covenant Hospital. Uh, we're talking about South Shore Hospital on the south side, where my, um, my, 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 I was born. Um, my wife nursed at South Shore Hospital also in the earlier days. Um, went on to other facilities because there was, there was a, 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 as you know, there's a social change on the south side. And we don't have to go into detail particularly on that issue. Englewood, for instance, was a, a, a hotbed of Swedish activity. In the days when I, when I was younger, um, the 40s and 50s, uh, the Viking Club, the Viking organization, I'll explain in a few minutes, they had their main building there. Some dances with 300 and 400 people coming to you. There were more marriages that came out of that whole area, I think, than, and uh, so I mean, and especially, you know, and the, the plaisance at the University of Chicago, you know, the, the remnants of the 1893 uh, Columbian Exposition, they flooded that in the wintertime, and all the Swedes would be down there ice skating, and that's where my mother and father met. It didn't last forever, but that's it. We won't even go to those details. That's another story. Um, but again, uh, it was a very active social life at that point. And of course, it was much in common. You know, people had the language and so forth, so they all uh, 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 went in that direction. Um, the, no, the, 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 right, the medical issue. Um, continuing, now these, this is a period room. <laughs> Over a period, this is an accumulation of stuff from various time frames during that entire emigration. There's some things that came from Sweden that were important. It's not any specific time at all. Um, it's just the things that have been donated to the museum we felt that might be worth uh, exhibiting. Uh, they're here now. Um, the the oven in the back there is called a kakelung, uh, K-A-K-E-L-U-N-G. Um, what made it unique was the fact that you had a fire uh, door in the middle with ashes on the bottom, and that would they'd heat that during the day and have it burning and, 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 and during the day, and then they would slack the fire at night, but the ceramic would stay warm all night long. 
so it kept the rooms warm in the meantime. Only middle class and upper class could afford that, in fact, so it wasn't unique. I mean, it wasn't common for everyone to have that. Pump organ, which is something. Um, the Swedish uh, artists and, um, and performers, Ingrid Bergman being one of them, uh, from on the operatic side, you've got Josip Bierling, Birgit Nilsson, um, Nikolai Eda, among others, um, that were very, very well known um, and became uh, quite, uh, quite successful. Um, again, I refer back to Moberg and his book. I think that would be something you should remember from our visit today. Um, yeah, it's just a whole bunch of stuff. The press, for instance, uh, there was a, at that one time there were what over a million Swedes here, so it made a very very good market for the press. This, the, the Swedish American Tribune was one, Vestkusten uh, or the West Coast, a um, couple of others that were quite had substantial readership. In fact, in, in Minneapolis today, their their main building. Uh, the the American Institute and uh, the Swedish American Institute in Minneapolis. That was a, a, a publisher that became wealthy in that in that market that d donated that building. Um, yeah, and artistic, um, musically, um, the the just the entire uh, social issue that that the Scandinavians brought with them when they came to this country added a great deal. Um, I'm sure that there are remnants of that in this current immigration also that we have to be careful we don't overlook. Um, I, I tend to be very um, open to immigration myself because I'm a part of it, first generation. So um, there should be certainly limitations, but I think that, they, that, 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 that incoming group of people that are in fact very industrious and are willing to take the jobs and do the jobs that need to be done today we shouldn't turn our backs on them. I know in my area down there, particularly the Latin Americans uh, are particularly involved in the in the in the uh, maintenance areas, um, not only grass and that kind of thing, but um, what do they call landscaping? <clears throat> Many people are not willing to get out there at 95 degrees in arena day and do that job, and yet they do it very well. Uh, so I, you know, I, I tend to be somewhat positive in that direction. Uh, that is my opinion. I don't try to influence anyone in that direction, certainly. <laughs> Again, um, remnants of stuff that came over, little by here, little here, little there. Um, we will see an example of that right up there shortly. Um, we're going to do something um, with that in a minute. I won't go through. Yeah, is, what about the um, social life? which we talked a little bit about. However, there were three major um, social organizations. Uh, the Vasa Order of America, which is still quite strong nationally, um, the Svithyut Order, and then the Viking Order, the Independent Order of Vikings. Those organizations provided a social background um, they were not only socially involved, but also you could, through your dues, you would get a, um, a benefit, a sick benefit or a death benefit. So there was some benefits of being a part of the organization. They didn't trust banks after 1929. So I mean, that was the idea, and they weren't familiar with the language. So there was a really great social outlet. Not only the fact that they would be able to find jobs from each other or through this network, which was important. Um, I think maybe I could take two minutes. My father was rather aggressive, as I mentioned about his dealing with the priest and the local community. Anyway, um, 
He was, he, they, they called the United States Steel, they called, they had uh, 500 jobs, and about 7,000 people arrived at the front gate. He happened to look in the back and he noticed that there were railroad cars going into the plant. So he slowly walked back, little by little by little, and hid in one of the railroad cars and rode into the steel mill on the railroad car. So he stood then, got off the railroad car and stood against the wall there, and, and, and some guy came by and he said, is that you, Martin, you said? Yeah, what, what are you, I didn't know you worked in here. He, I, he said, I don't. He said, my God, man, you realize that you're breaking the law. You could be arrested. And he said, yeah, I know. <laughs> he said, well, all right, because he, he was clever with the piano. He played the piano. He played for their dances every once in a while, and this gentleman happened to be a part of that group. So, and he was a boss. So he said, wait here for a little while. I'll try to get back to you in a few minutes. He waited and waited and waited and waited and stood there for hours and hours and hours. And finally, this gentleman came back. He said, oh, I forgot, he said. I'm sorry about that. Here, take this little piece of paper over to the, to the medical doctors and tell them that you've, been, uh, that you've been accepted. And he did. He took it over. They gave him clearance, and he got his job. However, he had to work straight for 24 hours the first day. Right straight through, didn't have a chance. Uh, they were unloading an ore ship, and the young men that they had there had no idea about l unloading because if, if they have the boom coming from the upper part, and once they fill the scoop, if they don't lift it up really slowly, it'll swing back and forth and hit the sides of the ship. So they were messing up completely. They, so one of the guys said, does any one of you guys have any experience in rigging? And I said, yeah, my dad said, yeah, I do, I think. So he started. <laughs> <laughs> I, he started doing it and realized what had to be done, so he, they loved that part of it. And he did, he got the whole job done. So then the next ship came in, and they said, uh, sweet, can you stay a little longer? So he stayed for that second ship unloading as well. But he went on, ultimately, however, they had layoffs as things died down, uh, and he was laid off. Then he became a janitor on the south side, had a building of, what, 20, 35 apartments, I think, that he took care of. So managed to go. Then he finally bought a bar and a restaurant, of which I was raised, by the way. If you notice, bar and restaurant. Um, oh, okay. Potato salad in a big pot like that with maybe five or six or seven or eight dozen eggs that had to be peeled and chopped up. They call it sous chef, I think is what they call it. That's the nicer term. However, I, I know all about that. Uh, she, my mother catered the uh, after-funeral things and um, wedding, some sm smaller, smaller wedding receptions and so forth. She later went on to buy a restaurant also. So I know about the 4 o'clock up. I know about putting together uh, roughly 130 plate lunches between the time they arrived until the time they came in at around 11 o'clock in the morning. By 12.30, all of them were gone. Then she went to spaghetti. And, and meat sauce and that kind of thing as a backup. So uh, I'm well aware, but I also know about the cleanup. <laughs> and I also know about the dishes and pots. Now these cooking shows on TV, that really irritates the <laughs> devil out of me. Yeah. Oh, wonderful, yes, we'll throw that one over here and we'll put that pot over there. We're gonna do this over here. And all of the stuff is all really measured out very nicely here. And I was thinking, I saw, wonder, I wonder who did that. I wonder who's doing that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. What is the four o'clock up? up? 
um, a.m. to get to the restaurant because she had to start at oh, 6. Gotcha, gotcha. And I was working another job and I took her in the morning. So that, that was the time I was with the Swedish American line, in fact. All right, social life. My, I happen to be a part of a, a group called the American Union of Swedish Singers. Uh, it's a national organization founded in 1893 at the Columbian Exposition. Uh, they filled the Grand Hall three times with 7,000 people. They had 350 singers on the stage at one time. So that's a, the original part of it. Today we're still alive. We're, we're a cultural heritage foundation. Uh, we have still 27 choruses throughout the United States that are still performing. We have one here that rehearses. We have one in Waukegan. We have another one in Chicago. Uh, there's one in Rockford, one in Minneapolis, and two on the west co East Coast, and a couple west on the West Coast also. So it's still a national organization. We had a, a, a convention in Chicago in Lombard where we had 350 people on the stage at Wheaton College uh, in, in, in July of 2016. So the organization is still singing approximately 60% in Swedish and 40% in American. So there is a cultural tie there that's important to keep going, I think. Um, the Milwaukeegan group has thought about going completely Scandinavian. Um, Finnish, Norwegian, or Nordic, I'd say. Uh, Finnish, Norwegian, Swedish, Danish, and Icelandic. Um, mm -hmm. They're thinking of going exclusively to that and just to keep the culture going. Um, you probably heard about Nilsson, the, the chef that has the display down there. Um, that's something that's worthwhile seeing. He's written a book also. It's a little bit more refined than my talk, however. Um, mm -hmm. I like dill. <laughs> By the way, I want you to know that. I, I dry my own dill. And of course, salmon, uh, I bake a salmon and uh, with a little butter on the top and, and lemon. I bake that and then drizzle, drizzle some dill on the top. That is good. Okay, what about lutefisk? Oh yeah, well, that's a good one. Uh, <laughs> note, note please, note please the difference here. We're talking about lutefisk, which is Norwegian, and lut Fisk, which is Swedish. The very, very important designation there. Oh, um, we have to be trouble. It's only because of the separation between Norway and Sweden, 1906. So there's still that little bit of a conflict there, as a matter of fact. <laughs> is the dish prepared the same way? Yes, it is, right? Yeah. It lied. Not lied to, but lied on. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they, they dry it with lye, and then um, it, that's to preserve it, obviously. And then that during the winter, they'll break a piece off and soak it overnight. I made lutefisk. You did? Excellent. Yes, yes. I did it for one of our meetings. We had a speaker specifically on lutefisk. Good. And you, you take the dried fish, you rehydrate it. And that is a number of steps because you have to keep changing the water. Exactly. Then you put in it in the lye. For, and if you make a mistake, you'll find out when you cook it because it might get all soapy. It gets soggy. The worst soapy. thing in the world. Soapy. Really, that because yeah, of the lye. It's to, because the lye turns it into soap. Oh my yes. God. And so you like you don't really know until you cook it whether you did it right. <laughs> and so you put it in the lye, and then you have multiple changes of water, and then you go and freeze it. Yeah, that is true. All of that. Uh, the other issue too, if you overcook it. Once you then, and I think it's often overcooked. Yeah, that's the problem because it becomes mushy, mm -hmm. 
and it, but if it's done properly, it's really quite good. It keeps the consistency of the, uh, the original fish. That's, that's served with either a cream-based uh, uh, gravy or a mustard-based gravy. Which it, it's uh, with cream with mustard in it. It's a, it's a cream based, not any, it's not a meat based, but a cream based gravy with boiled potatoes. Is that cod or? And a lot of, well, the aquavit more so with the, with yes. the, um, the, uh, yes. the herring. There's another fish, but the, yeah, it's in the cod family. Yeah. But, but here, here's the other thing. So you read the cooking instructions for the, you know, the lutefisk has already been through the full process. They're talking about boiling it for over an hour. Now, when you take, like, when you prepare fish at home, you know, the rule of thumb is, what, 10 minutes of cooking for every inch of thickness. Correct. So I only cooked mine for 20 minutes. Uh-oh. Because, no, no, it oh, was fine. It was fine. But here was Mr. Rose. Many people here know Mr. Rose. He says, it doesn't taste like lutefisk. <laughs> so I took a piece, and I microwaved the heck out of it. And he says, well, it's like rubber bands, but the taste is there now. <laughs> so he's used to an overcooked fish. Yeah. I think it's overcooked. That's Right. It, 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 it's something I don't care for particularly. Uh, it's something only a traditional issue. At Christmas time, we still do the meatballs. Uh, we still do the, I do the, the uh, inlock seal or the uh, pickled herring. That's a very big issue with the Swedes. Um, also, uh, potato sausage, not meat sausage, but potato sausage. There's a difference. Um, um, Paulina, Mar- Paulina Market has a, a variety, but that's a meat sausage rather than a true potato sausage. True potato sausage has potatoes, um, onion, uh, and veal, and pork. And that's mixed in a uh, high concentration of potatoes and, and onion so that it's, it's dom- dominant. And then it's mixed very carefully and then threaded into a sausage stuffing. Where um, can you get it? Um, I really don't know. I know Paulina has it, but that's the Paulina, meat. Paulina, right. Paulina. Right. It's still more, more toward the meat side. Some of the churches on the south side used to have a, um, uh, a sausage day. And they would make it the southern, uh, the Swedish way, the, 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 the potato way. I haven't seen it. My wife, my wife and I, we did it though. Um, we used our our sunbeam. What is that big guy? Yeah. Oh, like a yeah, food mix master. Right, yeah. mix master. And it has an outlet on the top where you feed the, yeah, feed and then the, you you right. run the sausage out yeah. that way. Well, we used to do that every year, but then it gets old after a while. Yeah. Um, <laughs> many of the traditions become oh, and glug. Oh, that's another one. That's Swedish. Um, of course, our friend um, across the street, um, Simon's. Yes, Simon's Bar, right? I know that family quite well, Tom Martin and his son Scott. Um, we, we were, our kids were raised together from long. We, he sang in the Svithyut chorus with me in the 80s, so that's how we got to know each other. Anyway, he's done a thing with blog. It's a combination. It's a winter drink. It's the time when, when you, uh, you, have you heard of Yuluta? That's the four o'clock a.m. church service in Sweden. Uh, that has to do something with the timing of something. I, I don't know um, what it was. Uh, something, it has something to do with the religious timing at 4 a.m. in the morning in Sweden. And they all went to church at that point. Well, when you came back, it was cold. They always had the glove, and that was the thing. Is this at Christmas? Yeah. Christmas. It is a Christmas it's drink, a basically. Spice. Basically, so yes. It's usually with uh, with a, um, a Italian red uh, dry wine, not sweet, um, and sherry, port uh, port yeah port port to sherry, right? 
Is it Port of Sherry? No. It's a port, port of wine. Port, port of wine. Right. Port, port, port brandy and it's not Correct. Well, port is a sweeter one, right? Yes. All right. That, that's part of that part of it as well. And then it has a bunch of spices, and it's cooked, simmered, and then at the very end you add a pure alcohol, 199 proof, the kind, wow. and add a cup of that at the very top, and then you burn that off. Um, burn it off and it gives that smoky flavor and then you let it sit for a little while and that's what the glug is all about. And almonds is, and raisins is, and prunes. Also. What's the Santa Lucia buns? Uh, yes, right. That's for the 13th of December. Um, the, the, the story behind that actually it varies greatly but um, supposedly there was a young lady in, in Italy uh, uh, Queen Christina, by the way, one of the Swedish queens, she was extradited or deposed and spent her time in Italy. Um, so she was down in Italy for quite a while. So a lot of the, the, the Swedish glass uh, the industry was largely influenced by that because the, the, the Viennese glass people were encouraged to go north. Um, a lot of the, the um, churches that had uh, intricate wall paintings and so forth were done by the Italians also. So there, there's a lot of influence. The, the, the um, northern Europeans also were, were very instrumental in the steel industry in Sweden also. So there was a lot of interplay during that period. Um, also a lot of warring. Uh, the Hollanders and the Swedes, they didn't get along too well. Are you familiar with the 1638 colony in Wilmington, Delaware? Yes. Someone said yes. Back there. Back oh, there. really? Because they have a thing there. Yes, believe it or not, um, the Swedes actually included Norway and Finland at the time, by the way. It was all Sweden. Um, the Swedish king decided that they wanted to start a colony because the Hollanders were already over here as well as English. And the Swedes considered themselves a fairly decent world power at that point. Um, so anyway, they decided to send a colony over to the U.S. and start a, a colony over here. Uh, largely Finns, however, from Finland, however, they were Swedish. Uh, and they settled in Wilmington, Delaware in 1638. Now, by the way, 1638. So the Swedes were there that early, um, not too long after the, the English, as well as the, the Dutch. That ultimately what happened, uh, the Dutch took over, defeated them, and there's a transition. That's why those people were Anglican. That's why the Anglican Church has quite a bit of stronghold or influence in the later years also. In fact, the early Swedish immigration, Sankt Anskarius uh, colony or congregation was Episcopalian. And there, there's quite a, again, quite a, quite a, uh, con, uh, quite a co cooperation, I guess you'd say. Um, that's in that little book, by the way, if you want any further detail on that. All right, um, and further, let's, I don't have to believe too much hold. Um, <laughs> has to do with, with the industrial aspect. I don't know how many are familiar with the fact that Walgreen drugstores are Swedish in background. No, didn't know that. Yep, Walgreen, the Walgreen family immigrated. The original Walgreen family immigrated from Sweden. Uh, did you know that the Greyhound Bus Company was Swedish? You did know that. Uh, a gentleman started a bus company way up in Minnesota someplace, and it generated into, into the Greyhound Bus Company. 
um, Appleton um, electrical wares. By the way, the staircase we came up with on today, that was donated by the Appleton family. By the way, also the Goodman Theater downtown is a part of that family. Swedishes are everywhere. Just about. Well, there are a few Norwegians out there, too. I have to admit that. So. <laughs> um, the bowling company, um, they were, they're well-known. Tom Bowling served as Council General in Chicago, so they became well, fairly well-known. Uh, the, the bowling company. And, of course, uh, Andrew Lenquist and several other architects that were involved with the city um, planning. Um, one gentleman, which I can't remember the name of, was involved with the Manhattan Project and the splitting of the atom at the University of Chicago. There was another Swede, a Swedish gentleman that was an engineer with its switching of the river flow uh, and the entrance of the locks. Um, Landquist was involved with the building of the Wrigley Building and many others. Um, so it, it's too complicated to get into today. I mean, as far as that can, I don't know it. That's the thing. Nails for. Yeah, there was a gentleman here, one of the tours, he, gave, he just gave, got into a gentleman. I'd never heard the name before. This individual was all over the place. I didn't even know it. So there are a bunch of people that are all, um, the, um, the, the uh, chef that we're talking about, he's also a photographer. So some of his work is here, and it's really quite, quite good. I mean, um, it's on the third floor. No, oh, here. Oh, you're oh. here? The bonus of Keith not being here was we were supposed to do this self-guided, and we got the guided tour from you. That is true. So it worked out well. Perfect. Yes, it has for me as well. You haven't complained greatly. That's the important part. <laughs> we never would. We're polite. <laughs> An interesting question just came up. Um, you know, what about the, the integration? Of, of the of the Swedish community and into the overall community. One of the questions that comes up now with regard to multi multi signing, multi language signing, Spanish and English. Um, you know, talking about the Swedes, Norwegian, Danes, Italians, maybe not so much the Poles. They seem to be a bit more um, together and keeping the language. But in my case, my family couldn't just get out of Swedish fast enough because they were concerned about the greenhorn. Uh, the people that were greenhorns and spoke in foreign language, especially the Germanic languages, they thought immediately it might be German. And of course, any foreigner during that period, including what happened to the Japanese uh, after Pearl Harbor. So I mean, that was something they tried to assimilate very quickly. The, um, but that, so that one of the reasons, and they were rather aggressive in their work also. My mother was with an um, American English-speaking family, so she, obviously she learned English very quickly. And my father was somewhat forward-thinking and moving anyway, so he was very, very active in that direction. But very aggressive um, and, and, and able with having run a restaurant on the south side, and um, in fact, surprisingly so. Uh, she was so um, imaginative or able that she went down one day and a friend of hers was working at the Stouffer's Sandwich thing at, at Randolph, no, sorry, yes, Randolph in Michigan on the corner before the, 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 uh, the uh, Prudential Building. Stouffer's had the, the uh, catering. Correct, exactly. Well, they also had a sandwich shop on the first level, one of the first carryout things in Chicago. 
Um, anyway, she went down there to talk to a friend and visit with her, and, and the boss happened to be there. And he said, are you um, looking for a job by any chance? And she said, well, I guess I could, because she had just sold a restaurant then. Um, she went in, and, and about a month and a half later, was managing the operation with five people. Um, so that's the way it went with her. She was just able to do these things. And, and um, the uh, cinnamon buns, the cardamom cinnamon buns, oh boy, and bread, <laughs> bread, freshly baked bread. I remember that one. I was slop, you know, good portion of butter on the top of that. And that's what I remember when I was little. So I, I had that background. And food was extremely important. Mm -hmm. um, that's one thing I, I wonder sometimes with regard to my longevity, how that background and the, the, the cooking and, and the concern with diet and so forth carried over from Sweden to the US. I think particularly with the Nordic, Nordic, Nordic people, that was the case. Oh, you have the time with the oil? Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Do you still have it? No, but I take fish oil. <laughs> I take it encapsulated now at this point. Okay. Well, it's much more civilized. It is, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does leave an aftertaste, however. You've got to be a little careful about it. you got to swallow fast. <laughs> exactly right. No, yeah, and well, of course, herring was big. I mean, fish was also a big issue. I mean, that, that omega-3 was coming in other directions as well. A pretty healthy diet. I, I never had a piece of white bread my entire life, actually. And I knew better when I got later. And, you know, we never bleached and very little sugar other than on bakery goods. <laughs> There's exceptions everywhere. <laughs> exactly. Oh, and coffee. Yes. That has got to be one of the good things. What about the Vikings? Of which all of us Scandinavians and many others of the um, English-type people from the northern part of, of Europe and northern part of the, they came Vikings or were influenced by the Vikings. Um, they weren't really those terrible people from what everybody says. Um, many of them, they were, they were tradesmen in fact mainly, that's what they did. They were good at making rope, uh, they were good at, you, at, at making uh, string out of, out of the intestines of animals. Um, they were good at tanning. Uh, in fact, the Roman soldiers that had those things on their legs to protect their legs, they're sort of like sheets of leather, leather if you've seen those, hanging from their belt. That was the Vikings. They would tan that leather in the winter and bring it down and sell it in, uh, during the, in the summer months. Um, also, the Vikings were personal bodyguards for several of the emperors because they were, um, had know how to handle weapons. <laughs> um, but again, it was a very violent time. I mean, you wanted something, you went out and got it. That's what everybody did. So, I mean, you had to either protect yourself or... So, I mean, it's not... It's not they, recently, they had the display down at the... Um, um, uh, at uh, Field Museum on the Vikings. And it was really interesting because it gave a more practical approach to them as being not that terrible, awful people that we've known them to be. Uh, or when you leave today, uh, timing is working out pretty well here. Um, <clears throat> when, you, when you leave today, if you look in the, in the Osher Library where we were earlier today, if you look on the one wall, there's a huge plaque and that's from the Columbian Exposition in 1893 also. Um, it was in Florida, and somehow we, the museum got in touch with it. 
Um, also, the Norwegian Pavilion is up in um, just outside of Madison in the Norwegian town up there. Um, it was saved by Wrigley. Wrigley bought bought it uh, after the Columbian Act, the Wrigley family, and he made it his man cave. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he thought of it that way. Right. <laughs> so he would invite all his friends. That was the only place they could safely smoke cigars. So he would invite all of his friends up for a weekend, and they used the, the Norwegian pavilion. Since then, it's been dedicated and donated, so it's restored now. I, I, I New Glarus, is it somewhere up in that direction? Is anyone familiar with it? There's another little town there where the Mustard Museum is. Oh, yeah. Is it? One of those, anyway. The Mustard Museum, there are 12,000 types of mustard. Yeah, yeah, it's great fun. And they have Poupon you? Yes. <laughs> and I and I helped judge their uh, mustard competition. Did you really? Oh, wow. Yeah. You're welcome to come. They're always looking for volunteers. Wow. Yeah, Poupon you, of course, P-O-U-P-O-N yeah. University. Yeah, that guy has a sly sense of humor. Yeah, well, it's, it's really quite interesting. But again, a typical example of, of Scandinavian lore. We're pretty much drawing an end to the um, part, this part of the program. Um, I'm not sure what we're looking at downstairs just yet. We're probably about 15 minutes early for the, the, the uh, genealogy thing over. Well, that's why uh, we have coffee and cake. That's what I thought. If it's possible for you, um, I can't be much help in the uh, display. Just make sure that you find out about the book that he wrote. I guess it's quite good. Um, it, it's mostly Scandinavian fare. Uh, Akvavit restaurant in, in, in New York is quite famous. Um, right, and there are, and, and Trey Kroner. Are you familiar with Trey Kroner? Yes, and the great Yule board. Ah, yes. They now, have do, a, they, do they have potato sausage there? Uh, yes, they do. Okay, so that's a point. And they have hair. In, Yes, I'm not familiar with that. Tell, please do. Uh, I just tell everyone, Akavi Theater Company has wonderful theater, and it's um, they do a lot of new works, plays, and they have one they just finished um, that I think is going to be doing a, a tour of the U.S. So Akavi, check mm, them where out. Where are they located? They play in different locations. Oh, okay, they roam. Yes, but they're really a wonderful group. Well, you've got a bunch of, of uh, writers from Scandinavia that are fairly well known. I'm not Strindberg. Who who the other one that's very fami famous? Nozog? The Norwegian. No, the Norwegian. Oh. Um, uh, Pierre Gint was one of his. Uh, um, and of course, obviously, I should I, I should mention our, our our you know one of the most famous that I'm having a senior moment on right now. Grieg. Of course, and if you ever, uh, Edward Grieg was a composer, and um, oh yeah, he's in Landia. Uh, well, that, well, that's finished. That was uh, 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 Grieg wrote uh, many, many, many things. Peer Gint was one of them, but many other things like his symphonies and so forth. Uh, in in Bergen, they've restored his uh, library and his uh, studio, and it's right on the fjord. So if you come there, at, it's called Trollhagen. If you come there in Bergen and you stand at his, at his little studio and look out over the fjord, you can well see his music. He said, 
it's so much of it you can just hear it when you listen to Edvard Grieg. Think about that when you have a chance. Well, Next thank time. you very much for your time today. Yeah.